Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. How's it going, Dave? Not too bad, Mike. Not too bad. Uh, spring is in full swing, and uh, and the rain along with it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Makes the grass grow. But on the bench keeps putting out episodes, so I have my yard work covered. And you know, uh, we've got a contest under our belt, and man, that still feels good. I'm still riding that high. Well, I am too, but other than the contest high, any other, any other non-build stuff going on in your model sphere? Well, uh, I am, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit, and I'll talk about that when we get to the Benchtop Halftime Report. I just do note that I have less Benchtop time because of the fact that we're now into the, into the rush of spring. Well, that's no good. Yeah, how about you? <laughs> Mostly been dabbling, looking for something else to start. I'm just kind of getting <laughs> the itch to start something. I got, I got Batesitis. Batesitis. That's right. Oh, that's a terrible thing to have. Uh, actually, while I've, I've got a little bit of an itch, not necessarily to start something new because I've got stuff that I need to be finishing on, but uh, I have decided to reorder some of my plans for the year were, you know, four months through, and I had a plan about the three or four or five items that I hope to complete this year, and I've kind of modified that in my mind because of, uh, I think that happens every year to me, is that my plan is to build these five kits, and when you look back at the end of the year, at least two or three of the ones you were planning at the beginning of the year aren't there, and there are a couple that you didn't, weren't even thinking about at the beginning of the year. <laughs> I'll have to sort that out. We will. We will. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So what are you, uh, what's your modeling fluid of choice tonight? Well, thanks to our number one fan in Indiana, Mr. Inchai, I'm drinking a little uh, Larceny Kentucky bourbon whiskey, Dave. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, in, in Chai, who has good taste in both modeling friends and bourbon, uh, gifted us each a bottle of Larceny when we saw him up at the uh, Indianapolis contest. And I'll be honest with you, this is the first time I've had Larceny. I have not, uh, I've, I've not had Larceny before. So what do you think? I think it's uh, a little rye heavy, maybe like uh, like the bullet. So I think it's got a similar kind of spice to it. And, yes, uh, I'm enjoying it. Yep, uh, it's now it's 92 proof, so it's just slightly hotter than say a bullet or your your average bourbons are, are in general either 80 or 86 proof. Now you can get stronger ones, but in general, bourbon runs between 80 and 86. This is 92 proof. So it's got a little bit of a more forward alcohol finish. It's got a little heat to it. Yeah. It's not unpleasant. Not at all. 
No, uh, it's it's good. I'm enjoying it. So thanks, Jeff. Appreciate yes, it. Yes, thank you. Raise a glass to Jeff Groves. <laughs> thank you, Inchai. I will be enjoying this the entire episode and probably thereafter. Probably so. Well, I tell you, the, the uh, listener mail took a little bit of a, a pullback last time, but I tell you, they've made up for it. We got lots of good stuff here from our listeners in the listener mailbag. Yes, absolutely. Well, first up is a Kit Headley again, and uh, he says we're busting his mojo. I don't believe that. <laughs> How so? Uh, he says he was uh, making solid progress on some tiny spaceships and uh, a car model, but uh, as he's working our, his way through our backlog, he got turned on a 72nd scale aircraft forum, the forum that you're, yep. you're, uh, you're barking about sometimes. Yeah. And uh, he got on the forum for two days and hadn't glued anything together since. <laughs> <laughs> that can happen with that kind of media and other social media. Yeah, you got listen the the not to go off on too much of a tangent, but the folks who design social media design it to suck your attention because as as I forget who who it is that says it, you're the you know you go on Facebook or or Twitter and you wonder well what's their product? You're their product. They're selling your eyeballs to advertisers. And so so what they are doing is every deep psychological trick in the book to keep your attention and keep you from going and doing something else. And man, you really have to watch it. And I'm I'm confessing it happens to me plenty of times where and you know, you sit down and start scrolling through something instead of uh modeling getting up getting off your butt going down to the bench and modeling so you got to balance it now i love our interactions on facebook with the with the listeners so it's not an evil per se it just it's bad if you let let it consume your time he goes on i believe i forwarded this to you and you answered him about uh, what you get for your membership in ipms yes so we'll talk about that later, but I'm yep. going to skip down a little bit. And uh, I guess in episode 19 is where he is about. He talks about, um, we were I, we were talking about modeling stands and, and assembly jigs for, for aircraft. Right. A little bit. And uh, he makes these out of Legos. He's not the only one. I have seen people who do that both for uh, assembly jigs and for, believe it or not, tra- con- model transportation jigs you know if you were taking your model to contest making the actual jig that holds your model down in the box that you've got it in out of legos because of course you can build absolutely to whatever the model is you don't have to use a one size fits all jig well and he also has got uh, a an instagram account uh kits 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 and it's a K I T S underscore K I T Z. There he says you can check out also a Lego built uh, jig for twisting seventy second scale spark plug wires. Wow, that's interesting. I can barely see seventy second scale spark plug wires. No doubt. So, Kit, <laughs> thanks for that. We'll get the. I think we can link to that. Yep, absolutely. Next up from Virginia Beats, Virginia is Jim uh, Miris. 
and I hope I say that right. Uh, Jim, Jim is a retired dentist at 80 years old and he was missing working with his hands and restarted modeling. He's climbing the learning curve. Of course, he originally started the hobby in the 50s, but he says he's really impressed with the way how many things have changed since the 1950s. I bet you are. Yeah, um, really? So he says his modeling fluid of choice is tea, but under the tea drawer is his liquor cabinet. And he has some fine bourbons in there. It tells us to keep up the great work. But uh, back to his, to his point about being a retired dentist, uh, Jim, you need to check out Paul Budzik's webpage and... His YouTube channel, I think it's Scale Model Workshop. Yes, I believe so. Uh, Paul Budzik is a, a he's still a, a working dentist, but uh, he's been in the in the profession for a long time. Uh, I'm not sure how old he is. Uh, and coincidentally, my father is a retired dentist, and uh, I, I want to thank John Bonani from over at the uh, the Plastic Posse Podcast. I think his father was a dentist as well, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. I might I think be. he'll he'll yeah. sort that out pretty quick if I'm wrong, <laughs> but there's something that uh, kind of lends itself uh, from that profession to scale modeling, and I, I think I kind of get it. Yeah, well, in, when you think about it, that's exactly what they're doing. In in many respects, they are modeling teeth. They are, and they're using yeah. a lot of uh, similar tools that we use and uh, i think we end up taking over a lot of their tools and yep. materials and use them in our hobby so you should check that out branson smith he's just over the river from you in charlestown indiana branson smith doesn't that sound like like uh some assumed name of a secret agent you know uh, maybe he says he's a part-time member of mmcl i didn't know he sold part-time membership <laughs> I don't think we do. He probably is referring more to the fact that he gets to the to the workshop or to the meetings occasionally. I know. I'm just teasing. Uh, if if he's a part time member, then what am I? I'm a ghost. I'm a ghost. <laughs> That's right. That's what I am. I'm a ghost. Uh, anyway, I don't know. If we can answer this, but I think some listeners who maybe served in the military and model can answer this. Um, he wants to know if we ever have trouble building a subject that we were overly familiar with. So where he's coming from is uh, he picked up AFV clubs, 48 scale AH 64 D Apache, which was uh, an aircraft he worked on in the service apparently. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just can't turn off the, the critical eye. That is if you are overly familiar with a subject or if a particular, particular subject is your favorite, and you have learned all you can learn about it, it can lead to a paralysis because what we're building are scale model representations. And by their very nature, there are compromises. You're, you, nobody is going to build something that is an exact replica of the real thing shrunk down. And what you have to do at some point, and it's really probably much harder if it's your your particular favorite subject, is decide, okay, I can live with this level of detail. And if you can't do that, I can see how that, that would quickly lead to a paralysis. Now, some of our friends over on the Model Geeks podcast, those, you know, those guys are all naval aviation guys. And, right. Uh, 
Uh, they've alluded to some of this before, so I, I kind of understand where he's coming from, though I can't relate to it personally. Now, I've gotten to a point where I was overly familiar with something by the time I got done building it. SU-76. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, our good friend Dave Waples, he's back again. Now, apparently, he's going to clue us in here, Dave. Okay. Uh he says all these Yamato kits that are coming from Tacom aren't the same scale. He's right. I went back and looked at that, and he is correct. The The, the big turret is 72nd. The secondary armament is like... It's 35th scale. Thir- 35th scale, and then... Does that, does that mean I have to buy it? Yes, that does. And then the anchors are like 16th scale. Okay, well. So, yeah, he's right. They're not all. I, I went back and looked at that, and he's he is absolutely correct. They are not all the same scale, which is, A, it kills the theory that they're going to give you a Yamato piece by piece, which is a shame. But it's interesting that the details from that ship are can generate that level of demand such that you get kits in three different scales from the same manufacturer with different parts of the same ship, but not the same part. So this 15 and a half centimeter gun might be as big as the main gun turret in 72nd scale. Oh, I, I suspect it probably would be uh, just about the, the same size. Okay. But yes, it does. It does mean you have, you have to go get it. He also gives a nice compliment on the way we, we patched together the, uh, the show from uh, Roscoe Turner going back and forth between the studio and the and the uh the live stuff well you d- you deserve all of that credit you did a masterful do- job with engineering that came out pretty good it's not all was not all on me we we paid for a little bit of that well it's, uh, we, just, we just didn't know it till i got the final product <laughs> <laughs> and he good says job. he'll see us in vegas good good i want i want to see a lot of i want to see a lot of everybody in vegas all right. Warren Dixon from Elkton, Kentucky. Now we've heard from Warren before. Yep. He's just saying, you know, he's, he's not uh, able to attend a lot of model shows and he's not caught up on that end of the hobby as a lot of us are. Um, wishes he's closer to Indianapolis. Well, Elkton can't be any further from Indy than I am. It It's a little further, but not much. Maybe another, uh, it, it might be another 45 minutes or so. Yeah, that, that might be enough to take all the fun out of it. For him, I don't, you know, yeah. I don't know. We all have our limits, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. But then again, guys, I, as I've said on on episodes before, if you're not going to contests, whether or not you compete, that's your choice, personal choice. But if you're not going to contests near you, you're missing out on something. You're missing out of so- on something that's really great in the hobby. And and I tell you, if you start going, you you'll quickly become uh, addicted to going because they are just such a good hobby experience. So Elkton's down close to Middle Tennessee, right? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's west Bowling Green. Okay. Well, Warren, you're going to want to watch out for the show down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Yep. And uh, our show, the MMCL show, coming up in September as well. I have been trying to get Warren to come up to that show. So 
This is our, our personal plea. Come yeah. to the show. Or Dave's going to drive down there and get you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I'll show him a good time. Yep. Now, this is a good one, Dave. Paul Wheeler from Springfield, Illinois. Hey, Mike and Dave. I was the fellow that said, hey, in the middle of the model room at Roscoe Turner. <laughs> that recognized your voices. <laughs> Says he's already geeked out and overwhelmed and finally at finally attending a show that, uh, you know, he kind of heard our voices and kind of all went from there. <laughs> that was great. That was that was great. It was so unexpected. Never thought about it before in my life. We're just standing in the model room talking. He, he walks up recognizing our voice. So I guess that's something that's going to happen now and then. Okay. He says he's planning on attending the Nationals with a 72nd scale Corsair, and he's hooked on Gumball Head. Good. You know, we need the, the folks at Three Floyds need to be sending us some swag or something. Cause, well, man, he says his, his favorite is Middle Finger Space Station. You know, and uh, yeah, that's not bad. Uh, I don't like that one as much as Gumball Head, but it is not at all a bad drink. Uh, of course, almost all of the Three Floyd stuff is good, er, other than the, the Robert the Bruce, because I just don't like Scotch Ales. Every, all the other stuff is very drinkable. And he says, thanks to me, uh, he's purchased a uh, KV-1, a JS-2, a T-3485, and an SU-76. All right. Well, I bet you his SU-76 experience is going to be better than yours. Uh, it probably will be. if It's, it's the Tamiya kit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scott Gentry at the Posse is working, f- trying to finish up that kit. And then, uh, I showed him some photos of uh, what I'd done so many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> didn't look like the same thing uh he says his wife's coming with him to nationals he's re- reserved a cabana for her for three days and uh, now he can shop the vendor room with a clear conscience there you go that's that's a wise man right there that's right uh richard cap from clovis california is back once again and he just thanks us for pointing out vilka models youtube channel that was the one who had these sequential builds for aircraft yes yeah, I've not checked it out yet. I apologize for not doing that, but uh, I just it, it's a good had a channel. lot going on. I have too, and that's speaking of social media. That's another thing that that can drag you away from your workbench. There is so much good modeling content on YouTube. Not to mention all the other stuff on YouTube history, etc. And you can fall down rabbit holes real quick with uh, with the uh, YouTube. But yeah. No, it's it's a great resource. All right. And he tells me here or tells us that uh, after listening to the Dr. Strangebrush episode, he knew that he had to get over his fear of using an airbrush. And he has spoken to John several times. And uh, with his coaching, he's purchased paints and equipment. So hey, he's going to love this episode. He's going to love this episode. So don't 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 go to sleep. Don't go to bed. Just. Buckle up and uh, listen, because he's going to be back with us here shortly. Yep. All right. And the rest of his, his email is for uh, Goose Gaffs and Blunders, and it's a pretty good one, but we're going to save that to when we good. put that episode together. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> uh, Ken Beckler. All right. This is interesting. He's, uh, his workology, he put a trademark by that. <laughs> Uh, is breaking the kit down into subassemblies with the idea that each is a kit into itself, which means he always has something to do. Now we've talked about this before. Yep. 
And that is a great approach. Uh, you you can't do it necessarily with every kit. Some kits lead themselves lend themselves more to it than others. But that is a great idea if you can focus on sub assemblies, break the kit down into, in essence, five, ten, fifteen smaller kits. It it's easier to focus. It's easy. You get that sense of accomplishment of finishing when you finish one sub-assembly, I think that's a great attitude. Uh, he says he's got no shelf of doom because of that. And he also wishes you luck on your Tupolev 128. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, and I'm going to need luck, and I am jealous that he does not have a shelf of doom because my, shel- <laughs> my shelf of doom is mocking me. We'll talk about We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. And he must have... Uh... Last on to our talk about trivia a little bit. We've not really got into trivia, but we've joked about it a little bit. What movie uses the words peace on earth and purity of essence? Isn't that Dr. Strangelove? Uh, you know, I think you're right. I believe it is. Okay. Or how I stopped worrying and learned to love the bomb. That is the actual title of the movie. It is. Yep. Well, we got Dr. Strange brush. Yes. It's similar. Ah, <laughs> uh, Gordon Sorensen, no geography. Uh, last episode, Dave was talking about a PC dash sixes from uh, air America. Yep. Uh, Mike Grant makes air America decals in 48 scale. Yep. But some of the smaller ones might fit the PC six. Yep. And I also have a passing acquaintance with Mr. Grant and uh, uh, may hit him up to see if he will shrink the sheet down for me. Uh, There you go, which is uh, Gordon's next suggestion. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, Mr. Mr. Grant and I have a passing acquaintance with each other. And by the way, if you've ever seen his models, uh, he is he's a fantastic modeler, period. But what his real specialty is, is doing what you did with the uh, the Airfix Bofors and truck. He takes kits from the 60s, 70s, and 80s vintage and manages to turn them into just beautiful models. Well, thank you for the compliment. I don't know that I went that far with that little kit. but uh, Oh, you it did. did. It did come out it pretty got you nice. There. It, well, it did. It got me there. Well, he's got links to Mike Grant decals and also an article on uh, the PC6s used by Air, Air America in Southeast Asia. So we'll put those in the show notes. Yes, I definitely want to read that article. Uh, Brad Belsheim. Uh, just tell us he loves the podcast along with uh, some of the others. And uh, he sent a picture or two of some of his armor. I, I need to do something with these pictures. I'm really bad about that, listeners. I apologize. Um, we need We need to set up some gallery. Well, we they can, can they can submit them to the uh, Facebook page, the Facebook right. page in the uh, the the uh, oh, the community section. But it's, it's right. I don't know, it's kind of clunky. I think it is. So I've I've started saving them to a gallery drive on my computer. I need to just start uploading them. Yeah, yeah. You could you could post groups of them to the main feed. I could, and everybody yeah. would see them then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Enrique Perium from uh, Hanover, Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, TJ over at the Posse put him on to us. So thanks, TJ. Thank you, TJ. 
Uh, Enrique has a small YouTube channel called The Race for Terra. And it's geared for either wargaming, wargamers who want to get into scale modeling techniques or scale modelers who are relatively new to weathering. Um, and it's interesting because uh, he says his videos, the whole point of his videos is to show ways to save time and get good results as possible in the amount of time that an average adult with a family and a yard, <laughs> I, I think that's directed toward you. It is. And a full-time job can realist, realistically invest into modeling. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've not watched any of your videos yet, Enrique, but I took a quick peek at the at the, uh, I guess, kind of the splash page for the your Facebook channel, and uh, looks like pretty good stuff. So, folks need to check it out, especially if it's time saving stuff. Definitely, man, just keeps on coming. <laughs> <laughs> this could be a long episode. It may be. Well, Dave, that's the end of listener mail. Quite a All bit, a right. lot, lot of fun stuff in there. Keep it coming, guys. Please send those to uh, PlasticModelMojo at, at uh, gmail.com. We love the interaction, guys. Uh, it, it's it's one of the things that keeps our mojo uh, uh, hopping. While you're listening to this or when you're done listening to it, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to rate the podcast on whatever podcast listening app you're utilizing, if you're utilizing one, uh, we appreciate a review. We appreciate five stars. If you can give it to us, helps raise the awareness of the podcast. And while you're at it, tell a friend. Uh, the best way for us to pick up new listeners at this point is to have somebody who's already listening recommend it to a friend. Um, if your friend, you know, almost everybody has a smartphone now. If you take their their phone and and show them how to download a podcast listening app, Stitcher, whatever, and then put them put our feed on it. You know, we appreciate that. And while you're rating the podcast, you can check out the other podcasts out there. We've got On the Bench from our friends down under in Australia. Uh, the Scale Model Podcast with Stuart and his ever-expanding cast of characters out of Canada. The Plastic Posse podcast and the Model Geeks with us here in the United States, and I hope everyone turned tuned into our time with uh, the Posse. Yeah, uh, in their in their last episode, that was a fun time talking about social media. Yeah, and finally, we got James and Malcolm out of the UK with Just Making Conversation. They always have an interesting and fun twist on uh, whatever they happen to be talking about. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the podcast, we've got a lot of non-podcast content creators out there we like to to support regularly uh first up is Stephen lee with sprue pie with frets and uh i'm hoping to get steven scheduled this week for uh, a little interview and some fun and we'll get him on the show in one of the soon to be upcoming episodes likewise chris wallace uh model airplane maker great blog great great youtube channel we've talked yes. about that before we're also cooking up a fun segment with chris and one of his modeling buddies and if you're listening you know who you are uh we have to flesh out this idea and see what we can come up with but uh uh, we're going to get Chris on with uh, someone else who's a, a a longtime listener and supporter of the show. So who happens who happens to be one of his good buddies up there in uh, Ottawa? Uh oh. Ah, uh, we got Jeff Inchai Guy Groves with his Inchai Guy blog, blogging all things seventy second scale, and he's this episode's modeling fluid sponsor. And I'm telling you what, this larceny is going down smooth. <laughs> And finally, Jim Bates, Scale Canadian TV. Uh, Jim also hung out with us with our posse segment alongside us. Uh, in fact, he took a broadside from you, Dave. Is he? It's, that's right. 
Has he issued any payback for that yet? Oh no, no. He just was he was just happy to know that I do it to you and everybody else, that it wasn't just exclusively him. <laughs> that was pretty rich though, man. That was yeah. pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, it, you see a shot like that, you just gotta take it. All right. Well, that's all the all the plugs I got. Well, uh I'd appreciate everybody if you are not a member of IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or whatever your national chapter happens to be, uh, if you would con- take a moment and consider joining. Um, uh, I actually was interacting with the folks from IPMS Canada, and they've experienced a uh, membership bump. So I'm hoping that at least some of that is coming from um, listeners in Canada joining IPMS Canada. Um, IPMS USA, we've got the nationals coming up. Uh, Those things don't happen without the national organization. It's vitally important that people join and support the national organization. So if you'd consider doing that, I'd appreciate it. Well, that gets back to Kip Headley's comments. I'll bring that back around, um, wondering what he got for his membership. Other than a really good magazine, which I think is probably worth the membership price, Tell, tell them about all the things that, well, not just him, but everyone, what uh, what the membership actually collectively supports. One, you get a really nice magazine. but that, And as nice it is, as it is, uh, and as worth the money as it is, that's almost incidental. What IPMS USA does is it provides a framework for all of the local chapters to exist and operate. They provide insurance to the chapters. They provide, uh, through the series of regional coordinators, keeping clubs from stepping on each other's contests, making sure that no two contests happen on the same day too close together. Um, that's not a, been a big concern for the last year, but in more normal times, it is actually a very big concern because n- something that really hurts both chapters is if two chapters too close together hold a contest on the same day, they split the they split the the attendees and it hurts both shows. And those local contests in many cases are what funds the chapter activities. Like our our contest funds the rent for the space that we hold our club meetings and club builds in. It also provides an ability to reach into the back catalog of the magazine. So there's a lot of good information there, and you can access it through uh, contact with the national organization. They've got a good website, a forum. And basically, if you're having trouble figuring something out or or having trouble you know, you're new to the hobby and you, you're trying to learn or gain information, you can contact them and they will direct you to someone to, to help you with whatever you're dealing with. So it's, it's a fraternal organization. It's, uh, uh, it's a bunch of guys giving their time, their hobby time to help the hobby be better as a whole. Well, I hope that answers Kit's questions and everybody else's for that matter. It's a, it's a good way to do your part to support all that's going on, really. Yep.
Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, it's countdown to Vegas time. I cannot wait. I know you can't. I can't either. At the time of this recording, we are a mere 106 days away from the 2021 IPMS National Convention in shining Las Vegas, Nevada. We're almost in double digits, man. Seven days we'll be there. I know. Oh, man. It's going to come quick. Yep. (laughs) Well, with all my goings on around my new job, I'm kind of behind on email, including to Bob Lomasaro. So I do have a little content though. First and foremost, I'm sure Bob would tell everyone to please pre-register for the comp- contest for the for the convention, not just the contest, but amen. The whole shebang. Avoid long lines. Get your stuff. Get your get your stuff early. Spend more time in the vendor room and in the model room and hanging out with us. Yeah, that too. Because Lord knows, Lord knows that's important to all y'all. That's right. Now, I peeled back one of the listener mails because it was kind of pertinent to the National Convention because uh, this is from uh, John Allen in Lafayette, Indiana, which is real close to the Roscoe Turner Show. Yes. Uh, their first ever show was the Roscoe Turner Show, and now they'll be traveling to Vegas for the Nationals. So <laughs> it's a big step up. Buckle up, Brett, baby. <laughs> if, you, if you've never been to a Nationals, it will knock your socks off. Everybody so, remembers their first nationals. Well, he he wants it to knock his socks off. And here is his concern that he's asking about. And hopefully we can shed a little light onto this. They're going to be flying out to Vegas and they'll arrive at uh, 8.30 a.m. on Friday. Okay. So he's, he's due to family commitments. Uh, right. John, John cannot attend the entire four days of the show, which that I'm sure a lot of people are in the same boat. Right. Not uncommon. Not at all. Um, One of his disappointments with the Roscoe Turner show was not anything Roscoe Turner had a lot of control over, but uh, uh, they didn't get there because of other family commands that day till around noon. Well, at noon, the vendor, the uh, not the vendor room, the uh, model room was already closed, closed for judging. And uh, I don't know if he ever got in, if he hung around that long or not, but you know, it didn't open up again till like four, four 15, something like that. Pretty typical. Yep. Uh, he's, he's just wanting some information. If he, if he shows up on Friday at eight thirty AM, uh, is he going to be able to see the models? I've got great news for you. You're going to get tons of time to see the models. The way that the IPMS USA national convention is judged is that at, on Friday evening at about seven o'clock, Sometimes it's eight o'clock. It, it just uh, there's a full day of contest on Friday. You have until like five or six o'clock on Friday to enter a model if you are going to enter a model. But the room is open up until seven or eight on Friday night when judging begins. They do all the judging between, believe it or not, seven and about midnight of Friday night. Uh, the judges are in there for four and five hours. It's a really a thankless, hard task. And there's a bunch of them because there's a bunch of models. 
But yes, you if you get there 8.30 in the morning on Friday, you will have all day Friday to see the models. And then Saturday morning, the judging's done. They've reopened the room at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. whenever they reopen the model room. So you'll have all Saturday. The contest judging is done Friday night. So the model room is open all day Saturday until they... The awards announcements, uh, which again are, you know, six or seven at night. So you should have plenty of time. You won't run into that problem. And that problem is something you see at local shows, one day shows. Yeah, there's one day shows and they're, they're not, uh, what's well, a one day show? It's just they need, they need a few hours to judge and uh, it's got to be, you know, yeah, fairly or fairly early, early in the afternoon or, or it's going to be, you know, late in the evening before people get home. Exactly. And, and I, again, shout out to the guys at Roscoe Turner. They had an unbelievable number of models show up uh, well above what their normal is, and they still managed to get everything judged and the show moving on schedule. And that, I'm sure, was very tough to do. So, John, that's a, that's a really good concern and question, and I, I hope uh... – Hope we've given you the information you need to, to give you some confidence. You are go- going to enjoy the show over the weekend that oh. you're allowed to attend. I'm sure you're not alone. He mentions that. I'm sure you're not alone in uh, that concern or, you know, yep. if you've never been to one. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this year is going to be a lot of people who have never been to one are going to show up. So, yep. Um, even if you can only go for one day, I mean, you know, even if you can, can only attend for one day, it's still worth going. Now, again, if you can't get there by Friday night, you're not going to be able to enter the contest, but entering the contest is such a small part of the convention experience. If all you can do is get there for four or five hours on Saturday, I'd still urge you to do it. It is well worth it. It's it's fantastic. Well, that's it for Countdown to Vegas. All right, Mike, uh, what's your... What's your bench top looking like in the face of a new job and spring having sprung? Well, I've managed to get to the point where only the back sides of the wheels for the Zist 2 need to be chipped. All right. What's the plan forward from there? Uh, I'll probably marry the wheels to the split trail and the lower shield and do some earth tones on that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, marry the gun subassembly to the sp- split trail subassembly and uh, put a fork in it. Okay. So the other than the base, I was going to say. So technically, at that point, the model is complete. Although yes. you're still planning on doing a base. Yes, and the base is started. It's just not very far along. Yeah. So is there anything else on your bench top? I tell you, I've I've been trying to clip away the support structure for one of these uh 20 millimeter anti-aircraft guns that uh, inch gave us gave me at the show mm-hmm. i think uh i think the support structure on this model is overkill do you yeah it's it's gosh it's almost impossible to get out of here well i know i know he said he downloaded that one from thingiverse yeah i think uh whoever did this should have had it had separate files for the gun and the pedestal and the uh the mount yeah. That way there wouldn't have been so much of this crap to cut off, but uh, we'll right. see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Um, I 
kind of been dabbling with the Reba Botond a little bit again. I need to get the scale drawings printed out in full scale. Uh, see where that's going to go. And I've been spending a lot of time just trying to find my next project. Not sure what it's going to be. So what what are the contenders? Let's let's we can solicit well, it's, it's, it's solicit still, some listener input. It's still the BM thirteen Katusha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm telling you, man, I'm I'm getting it to start one of those seven TPs or a T thirty four. Well, it, it's a coincidence that you talk about maybe reordering your builds or, or what you want to do, your plans for what you're doing next, because I've actually been going through kind of the same thing. Well, tell me a little bit about that. Maybe we can uh, come to a consensus on something. All right. Well, uh, quickly, let me tell you, the benchtop, uh, the M30 has not moved in the last two weeks. The... Uh, Mosquito has not moved. What I've been working on the last two weeks was uh, my plan to learn to get better because I tried something new. Uh, I got the AA-5 ASH missiles out of the uh, Trumpeter TU-128 kit and uh, actually took the approach that our listener mentioned earlier. Took these as a sub-assembly as a little model unto themselves. About, um, I was about to say that. Yep. And uh, uh, they're really pretty good uh, out of the box, but like anything, they can be improved a little. Uh, and so I added reinforcing plates from uh, styrene that I talked about last episode. And then at your recommendation, I got those Archer 3D rivet decals. And I, it's the first time I've ever used them. So not only did I use the chopper for the first time, I used these rivet decals for the first time. I've got to say they came out great. I've got one completely painted and I did that because I wanted to check and see, you know, if the rivets still were there and visible and they are. Uh, so the other three are all done. So all I've got to do is prime and paint them. And unfortunately, Russian air to air missiles are white, uh, which white <laughs> is difficult to paint and you never actually paint anything white. You always paint it a light blue-gray or a light yellow-gray. Never paint anything pure white or pure black. But uh, all I've got to do is paint up the other three prime and paint up the other three missiles. And uh, that sub-assembly can be set aside for inclusion when I complete the kit. Would you expand a little bit on what these decals are from Archer for those who don't know what you're talking about? Okay, they are 3D decals. They're decals that have height and depth to them. They're on water slide paper, just like a regular decal. The backing, clear backing film is incredibly thin. I mean, disappears quite easily when it's applied, but they're, the decals printed are just little dots. They're little rivets. And when you run your finger along them, you can actually feel they have depth to them. They're not just a printed decal dot they actually are a raised dome, as it were. Somehow they're resin cast. They're not 3D printed. It's a the resin cast. Yeah, I, right. I guess you're you're correct that that's what they are. Is they're somehow resin cast onto the decal paper, and uh, they also make. Uh, uh, the same thing with the uh, uh, stitching for World War One aircraft, 3D printed or, or resin cast printed stitching. 
I know you said that model railroaders use this a lot to enhance their uh, their rail cars. Yeah. But I, w- I was v- I was skeptical because again I'm like these really can't have any depth, but they do. But they don't look like they do when you first look at them. You're like those are just dots, dec- printed decal dots. You know they're not going to they're not going they're going to disappear as soon as you paint on them. They don't. They they absolutely are. 3D representations of of rivet heads, and so when you apply them to that to the model, in my case, to the backing plate, you end up with what what I was trying to simulate, which is the four rivet heads on the backing plate uh, on the fin of the of the missile. It's a it's a it's a new weapon in my repertoire, and it's one that I'm definitely going to keep because. I can see other applications that where it would come in handy. And he makes these in all different sizes and configurations too. He may have like six or eight different sheets of them. And I highly recommend the product. Well, I'm, I I'm highly recommend you getting a friend to try it first. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey, did I get sucker? I haven't even thought of that. <laughs> Shit. Uh, well, on to the more important part where we were talking about, you know, we had an episode at the beginning of the year where we were talking about what our plans for the year were, what we would like to, to oh, yeah. accomplish. And here we are four months in. Um, Hadn't started I, any of those projects yet. <laughs> well, I've, I've started the one, the TU-128. I've started one of those. But... As I'm wrapping up the M30 and the Mosquito and getting further into the TU-128, I've been thinking about what I want to do, and and some of those things have been changing. Uh, I want to do the TKS, and I bought the kit. And then after I bought the kit, Mike told me that he thinks they're issuing another version with... um, not rubber band track, but resin track or something rather than the link, the link and length uh, track. So uh, I may have to pick up another TKS kit to 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 get that. Well, I'll find out what exactly they've done before I ponied up for a second kit. So I don't know what they've done. It's, it's called easy easy assembly. Easy. I don't know. They've got a version that's got this this simpler track arrangement in it. And they've got another version that's got the simpler track arrangement in it and the Hataka paints to paint it with. Ooh, that, that that may be tempting. I don't know. So somebody out there on the net will have what actually is going on here. You know, IBG has been very responsive to my messaging, direct messaging to them on their Facebook page. So hmm. you might you might just ask might them just, to send, yeah. me, send you a picture of what this... Uh, this new track arrangement looks like. Yeah, I'll do that. That's a good idea. Because I understand your fear. Those things are absolutely tiny. I can't, it's like 70 second scale track links on most tanks. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. That's about the size. They're they absolutely tiny. I mean, they're probably like yep. six millimeters wide. Yep. Something uh, like that. And actually, thanks to you, um, I remembered that I, in rummaging through the the stash, I remembered that I had the Trumpeter 35th scale SA2 kit, which I bought and wanted to do for, for a number of years. 
but hadn't. And frankly, that one's kind of calling to me. So I may slot that in ahead of the TKS in my build schedule. Also, I have determined that I am going to get one thing off of the shelf of doom and finish it this year as part of my number of finished models. That's either going to be a T3485 or a P51, but one of those two is is going to end up getting finished. But I'm I'm kind of right rethinking the lineup for what's next. So what's next for you? What have you been thinking of? Uh well if you're serious about the TKS, I've, I was kind of entertaining the fact of jumping into that one too. We can do that as a buddy build. Well, really, that's about my only deviation, I think. And then I'm, I got to start painting the E16. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's about time to start another 70 second scale wingy wingy thingy. All right. So are we are we going seagull? Or are we going? Kingfisher, we go in French. Seagull, the, no, we don't go French yet. I gotta get a few more planes under my belt before we go that way. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe a Kingfisher, maybe an Arado uh, one ninety six. Maybe good choice. I, I, I don't know. I can't. I can't decide. Uh, maybe the Seagull, though. That's a pretty involved project. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know yet. I got a. I got a. Yeah, a Sky Raider. Back in the stash too. I'd like to build. That's also an excellent choice. So we'll see. I don't know. That's well, good. I guess that's our bench times. Mike, have you been monitoring the announcements? I have. I have been and monitoring the announcements. I have too. I always pay attention. See what what new is coming down the road, and uh, what's caught your eye. Uh, th- the one that's caught my most in the last couple of weeks three weeks is tacom has a double kit boxing of the panzer one uh they're boxing both in the same box you get an aus a and an aus b model of the panzer one now what's the difference between the aus a and the aus b is that machine guns versus 20 millimeter no they they put a different engine in the B that made the hole longer. So it's got a, an extra road wheel station off the back end. So it's longer. Oh, okay. So it's just a bigger, it's a bigger tank. Not much, but uh, that's the diff- primary difference. So they, they've put them both in the same box. You buy, you buy one, you get them both. Or you buy, the, like a you buy one kit, you get two models. Let's put right. it that way. <laughs> well, and they're pants are one, so they're small. Anyway. Oh yeah. They're not very big at all. What's your, What's your fave of the first fave of the of the of the last uh, of the fortnight? Uh, well, uh, Clear Pop, the guys who hit the hit the ground running, releasing just fantastic kits, has announced a seventy second scale EB one tracer, uh, or as the Navy guys know it, the stoof with the roof. It was based on the S two F airframe, and it had. Not a rotating disc on the on the top of it, but a giant teardrop shaped non moving radar array. And uh, frankly, the only way to have done uh, an E one B tracer before had been a conversion of the of the Hasegawa S two F kit using, say, I think Falcon models uh, or Wing seventy two. Uh, one of them 
made a conversion kit to do the E1B. But I'm sure that ClearProp's kit's going to be fantastic because everything they've done up to now is. And this fills a real hole in 1960s and 70s naval aviation. So I'm happy to see that. You going to buy one? Probably. Thank you. So what's what else has caught your eye? Uh, amusing hobby is a boxing. Uh, well, they came out with the the Ferdinand tank destroyer with the with the crane is a double kind of kit, and I got no interest in the crane. But they've now coming out with a boxing that's just the the tank destroyer, and it's got decals for the the last chassis that was built, uh, the one with all the chalk marking all over it, which doesn't gotcha. interest doesn't interest to me either. Uh, but I'm, I want to see if this kit's better than the, the Dragon kit. If it is, I'm going to get it. Now, this is the late version, right? No, no. This is the the, the Kursk okay, Operation, it's the early Operation version. Citadel with with the uh, no cupola on the on the roof of the superstructure, uh, no bow machine gun. Uh, gotcha. And because the markings, the markings, I have a set of decals from somebody, uh, one of one of the old uh, VLS companies sub companies made some decals yeah. for all the uh the units that were at Kursk. They had a real colorful kind of uh uh cryptograph kind of unit insignia on the back end of the superstructure. And they make a decal set that does all of those. So that's what I want to do with it. All right. It's a big hon- big honking uh vehicle, man. You you got another uh, fave of the of the of the of the uh two weeks here? Yes, yes I do. Uh our friends at DOS work who released the U9, which I still have to get one, have not done it yet, because, again, I know there was one up at Roscoe Turner, and if I had bought it, I'd have been building it that night, so I (laughs) held off. But the folks at DOS Work have released uh, two crew sets, resin figures. uh, I saw those. Three in each set for World War I German submariners, which is great because there's plenty of World War II German submariner figures. But, of course, they're completely different than the old World War I-looking guys. Um, They also released a series of paint masks so that you can do different numbered ships. And also they have released a masking set so that you can mask off the saddle tanks which are painted a different color than the rest of the hull. They're the on the top, they're darker. And instead of having to hand mask that, they've provided a set of uh, templates so that you can uh, just ma- paint and mask those off. So I'm definitely going to be getting those items as well. Anything else catch your attention? No, not really. If nothing else has caught my attention. Uh- I got a yawn though. Yeah, I got a yawn too. Oh, it's gonna catch some flack, man. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna go there. Go there. Uh, the Quinta or Quinta Studios SDKFC 250 interiors, the radio faces and dashboard right. panels. Yeah, the 3D the 3D printed pre painted things. Right. Cheaters never win. <laughs> well, that does bring it. We'll have to have that talk on a future episode. What what constitutes uh, a good modeling aid and what then crosses over into the line of cheating? And I assume these bother you because now everybody's 251 interiors are going to look exactly the same? They're going to look exactly the same. 
And you know, if you want a shortcut to a quick, good looking interior, I mean, by all means, I'm sure these are fine quality products. I mean, people, oh, yeah, have, been ra- people have been raving over the cockpit interiors for yes. a couple months now, right? So, yep. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just, I'm a build guy, not a paint guy. That's kind of my MO, yeah. right? And yeah. this, this is just like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> It's funny because uh, the the guys over on uh, Model Geeks one one I can't remember who it was I think it was I think it was Whitey was uh, s- saying the exact same thing he's like yeah nope <laughs> well and and yet I will tell you that those Yahoo panels those printed cockpit uh, dashboards I love those things uh, they are fantastic looking they're very realistic looking and frankly. I think that in most cases they're better than what I could do myself. So, oh yeah, and I get that completely. And, and you know, popping that, I don't, I don't necessarily get off on spending hours detailing a cockpit dashboard panel and then trying to paint it and and shadow it and do all those details. If I can pop that thing in and move on, get myself closer to finished. I love those, so we'll have to have a we'll have to have a whole episode about that. So uh, we may. The, and, and the other the other part is is it's not just the uh, looking the same is that uh, the, the gray radio faces in these in these sets. Um, yeah, I've not had I've not had these sets in hand, so I don't really know. Right, you're working from pictures, but if if they look like the pictures, I don't like the color at all, and I'm I'm going to be real curious what uh, folks. Uh, folks do with these to kind of kind of shift that because you you you're kind of stuck because all the dials and and uh everything else is already printed painted color right so you're going to be kind of stuck with this color well maybe you can wash it to shift it a little i don't yeah, know maybe maybe i don't know we'll see what folks do with it but uh yep. uh it's a shortcut not for me well let's get into our our interview with uh, Dr. Miller of uh, Model Paint Solutions, or as we lovingly know him, Dr. Strangebrush. All right, folks, I think you're going to enjoy this again. And, you know, we're going to have him back again after this. So it's just going to keep on coming. But uh, here's our next installment of Dr. Strangebrush. Well, Dave, we are back again with our special guest, Dr. Strangebrush. We're going to be speaking with uh, Mr. John Miller again of Model Paint Solutions, our sponsor for the show, and hopefully going to give us a lot more uh, fresh airbrush tips for us. John, how you doing tonight? Welcome back. Hey, howdy. Hanging in there. Well, good. Well, I Dave? am waiting for all sorts of new airbrush information. Well, I'll try not to let you down. Well, good. Uh, we got a lot of excitement last time you were on, and uh, hopefully we'll continue that, and then uh, we'll get some more excitement, and then a few months down the road, we'll do it again. That sounds good. All right. Well, the, the last time you were on, um, we kind of still had some questions, I think, around the, the wet and dry coat topics of airbrushing. Why don't we just jump right in, and, and uh, let's, let's, let's expand on that a little bit. Sure, sure. Before we do, before we start talking about wet versus dry coats, I thought it might be a good idea to take a step back and and discuss briefly prepping the plastic prior to applying that that primer or or 
paint with a wider, a wet or dry coat. And the reason I say this is I get a lot of emails from guys that are switching into acrylics, be it Vallejo or model, uh, a model master or mission, whatever. And they're used to uh, using lacquers as primers. And it, as, as you guys know, if you've shot a lacquer primer, it cuts right through grease and mold release, you know, compound right. like, like there's no tomorrow. And that's not going to happen with an acrylic. So a lot of guys switching over will uh, run into all the problems that I'm sure you, you have, have heard of. And, you know, and that is the paint coming off. It's not sticking. It comes off with, you know, uh, with tape. Um, it doesn't pass the fingernail test. And that in and of itself is a debate that I'd be willing to have the whole idea of the fingernail, you know, having to have a finish that can, you know, withstand chipping away by your fingernail, which I don't subscribe to that. <clears throat> None of yeah. the finishes that I use are that hardy. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't take them off with my fingers either. So I think there's a, there's a happy midway there, you know, between nails and, and being, you know, life color fra fragile, but, uh, but anyway, one of the, uh, one of the big steps to, to making an acrylic primer or paint work is getting the plastic sufficiently clean of oil, hand oil and mold release before you even apply the paint. And John, I will, I will admit to you that because I'm an enamel lacquer guy, you are absolutely right. I do, I do very little, if any cleaning of the plastic prior to applying either the primer or the first coat of paint. I had never even, it, it didn't, because of what I use, it never even entered my thought process. Yeah. And, and you don't have to, because with a, with a lacquer based primer, you know, the, the, the chemistry, the lacquer will just cut right through, you know, finger oil and mold release and, and get right to the plastic. And as you know, etch it ever so slightly and bite into right. it. Um, so the first problem most guys have is getting the acrylic to stick. And this often is a hurdle, you know, so steep that they give up. And I've had more than a few guys try to make the, uh, the switch. And uh, because they weren't willing to try a couple of very simple um, uh, tricks, you know, they never could get it to work to their satisfaction and they gave up on the paint. And I can't blame them. I would, too. But before you get to that point, there's a couple of easy things you can do to fix that. And the first is, before uh, the first part comes off the sprue, I usually take all of the sprues and I put them in a big, you know, those, those aluminum turkey baking pans you get the, from, the, from the grocery store, real thin, thin ones. Yeah. Get one of those, you know, I have a selection of sizes so that the sprue can lay flat in it. And then I take a mixture or a solution of denatured alcohol and Windex. And let me just digress for a minute on the denatured alcohol because it's important. The denatured alcohol, if you can get the kind I'm referring to, uh, is made for cleaning glass, and it will say for cleaning yes. glass. It cannot say um, uh, to be used as a fuel or as a you know for a, for a cook stove. Um, right. That's the kind of denatured alcohol you can't use. Um, it's only the kind for cleaning glass. Moreover, that kind of denatured alcohol is getting hard to find. We're having difficulty finding it here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and we've been told by, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot that they're no longer carrying the denatured alcohol for cleaning glass. So we're having to go to, you know, specialty stores like painting stores and stuff to get it. So 
If you can't find the denatured alcohol, you can go to your pharmacy and get the highest concentration of isopropyl you can find on the cabinet there, whether it's 70%, 71%, 90% if you're lucky. Just get the highest percentage that you can and mix that one-to-one, 50-50 with Windex. And that's Windex, the old style with ammonia, not the new style with vinegar. Okay? Windex. Windex with ammonia one-to-one. You can reuse it over and over again for for uh, for uh, cleaning sprues. So once it's done, pour it into a big container, put a cap on it, put it on the shelf. It's good for years. Um, so I basically cover the sprues in that solution. I let them sit at least two or three hours, and then I'll wa- wash them in very warm water, pat them or let them uh, pat them dry or let them dry by air. And at that point, you've removed uh, most or all of the mold release which is, you know, one of the biggest problems. Then you build the model. And in the process of doing so, you're imparting more finger oil onto the plastic. You're also imparting uh, static charge. If you've been doing a lot of sanding, a lot of buffing, you all you are in that process imparting uh, a charge to the plastic. And we'll, we'll cycle back to that momentarily. So you've completed the model. Your, your next step is priming. You may want to think about... <laughs> If you can, if the model lends itself to it, you may want to think about um, wet buffing the surface of the model with micromesh prior to shooting primer. And, and I'm talking a micromesh of about 8,000 grit or higher. And that is, that's a fine enough uh, uh, grit that you're not going to, you won't see scratches in the plastic, but it'll roughen the plastic just enough to give that acrylic primer something to bite into. I'd never thought of static charge building up. Yeah. Does that really have an effect? Well, I can tell you I can tell you that one of the things that I started doing uh, years ago, and actually I started doing this when I was in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. I was at the University of Nebraska there uh, for six years. And, uh, you know, in that environment where it was cold, we had the heater running a lot. Sorry. <laughs> That's Go okay. That's, it's bait. Wouldn't you know it? Yeah. So anyway, in that that weather there, where we were in, in the Midwest, we had the heater on. It was cold, and I was you know, down in the basement there. And I have to say that it was at about that time I started using Chem Wipes, um, which is a uh, a lint free paper based tissue that is used for m- basically cleaning the uh, the lenses on microscopes where you can't have mm-hmm. any l- any lint at all. I started brought, uh, you know a, a few boxes magically jumped into my suitcase on the way home and I I tried them at the bench and I can tell you that when I started buffing the plastic out with with a chem wipe um, I one of the things I noticed is my primer didn't bead like it did oftentimes before. And I think you, hmm. you may, you may have seen, you may have not seen this. If you're going right to a, uh, to a, uh, an acrylic primer and you don't use a preparatory dry coat, but you try to go right with a wet coat, sometimes you're lucky. Some acrylics will lend themselves to it. Others don't. And worst case scenario, you can get, you can actually get the acrylic to bead on the surface of the, uh, of the model, which is not what you want. Um, I noticed that when I buffed the surface of the model out with a chem wipe, that beading went away. So I attributed it to that. That's my experience with it. I've been using uh, a chem wipe dry because the only time they remove static electricity is when they're used dry. And they're formulated to do that. That's one of the reasons that we use them around microscopes because you don't want to impart a charge to the objective on the microscope, which will then attract dust. 
So hmm. if you if you use them dry, they're formulated to remove static electricity. And I noticed the beading when I was trying for a wet coat went away. So anyway, be, because of that, I've stuck with it. And but you know we're cycling we're cycling a, a little around here. But anyway, back to the micro mesh. If if let's say you're doing something really easy like a, you know a, a, a 148 scale jet with a very clean surface, right? That lends itself to a little wet micro meshing to prep it for for priming. If you're doing a, a 172nd scale uh, armor piece, you know, with a lot of corrugated surface to it, you really can't micro mesh that. So, you know, if, and you don't have to, but if you can micro mesh the surface, especially if you're doing a large aircraft with, you know, a large, a large flat surface area, that'll, that'll uh, go, that'll go a thousand miles to giving you way better adhesion of your acrylic primer when you shoot it. Well, on the, on the topic of acrylic primers, um, yeah. Steinle res. Yeah. Mission models. Vallejo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you got a, you got a favorite. I've used the Steinle res. I kind of like it. Yeah. I've used the Steinle res too. And the Steinle res really lends itself to what I call the fire hose technique. You know, um, the stuff goes on, you can shoot it on pretty wet. It, it, uh, it levels pretty well. Um, as you guys probably know, it, it, it prefers a large or larger size uh, nozzle than other primers. And it prefers a higher pressure as well. Right. From what I hear, most guys get the best results with like a 0.3 nozzle and upwards of 25, 30 pounds on the, of pressure. What's your favorite? Well, I, I, you know, I do like, well, I'll tell you, I like Mission. Um, and that's not just because it's on my site. I do like Mission. I think the Mission Primers is probably the, the one of the, the stars of the show when it comes to that particular brand of paints. Well, I'll tell you the this weekend, uh, I was at the shop where the our local club gets together and builds on Saturday morning, and a member, Ed Tackett, was singing the praises of Mission Models Primer, that he really liked that the priming quality, but also the adhesion quality of it. Yeah. And how and tough it was. Yes. It, and, and all of that's true. And all of that's predicated on getting that plastic free of oil and grease before you shoot it. Because much like any acrylic based uh, primer, um, uh, Mission is very sensitive to oils on the plastic. So if you get those free, all of that's very true. Um, if I could, while we're talking on Mission Models uh, primer, my suggestion on that is I dilute it one-to-one -one with Mission Thinner, but I find that I get the, the, the best results, best defined as uh, a finer, smoother finish with less tip dry, less goobers building up on the needle. If I add Liquitex Flow Aid to about 5% by volume. And when I'm talking Liquitex, and I'll take a moment here and digress. Liquitex is a series of products that can be found at uh, most of the craft stores across the United States. It's one of the reasons I recommend them. They're easy to find. Joann's Fabrics, Michael's, you name it. You know, they usually have an acrylic, you know, uh, paint aisle. And within that section, you'll be able to find Liquitex Flow Aid and Liquitex Paint Retarder. They're two separate uh, reagents, flow aid and retarder. Would you and would you take a moment and tell sure. people what those two things are and what they do and why you use them? Because sure. I think you know because you don't see them in normal hobby shops, 
I'm not sure that a lot of uh, folks are actually familiar with what they are and what they do. Yeah, no, it's a good point. You, you some of the paints are now coming out with uh, their versions of both. Vallejo has retarder. Vallejo uh, has a flow aid, um, uh, AK as well, as I recall. So yeah. some of the brands, some of the brands are, are are beginning to fill that void, and it's a void because I've been using these reagents and acrylic paint for for you know fifteen years. And it's only within the last, I'd say, five, you know, maybe a little bit more. Exactly. That they've jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, yeah, flow, you know, flow aid and retarder. Here you go. So anyway, uh, what the two do, um, the, the flow aid uh, is going to uh, affect tip dry. That is to say the tendency of paint to build up as goobers right there at the nozzle needle interface right there at the tip of the brush. Um Whereas retarder is going to slow the drying rate of the paint. Now, the important thing and the, and the, and the conflicting thing in some ways uh, about the way these two reagents work is they both have effects on each other. That is to say, flow, which preferentially affects tip dry, will also make the paint dry a little slower. Likewise, retarder, which preferentially affects dry time, will also make the paint have less tip dry. So there's a little overlap between the two, but when but they, they affect more in a more pronounced way uh, and more specifically either flow or, or paint dry, if you will. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you use uh, in the average acrylic th- uh, thinner, if you use about 5% of both, 5% of flow aid and 5% of paint retarder, you'll find way less tip dry um, uh, way a smoother finish. You'll get less of that powdery overspray, especially at a ninety degree. Everybody, air, all the aircraft guys know that wing root powder that you get at the side of the fuselage when you're shooting yep. the prime. You'll see a lot of that will decrease. You won't get rid of all of it. Um, you know, a lot of that is how you apply it, but you will see a decrease in that powdery overspray when you use both the flow and the retarder together. So back to the primers where this is relevant. Um, I had really good results with Vallejo primer. Um, I shot the white. I I think they they had the white and the gray. And the way I would shoot the Vallejo primer is I would add, uh, again, uh, Liquitex Flow 8 to 5%, paint retarder to 5%. So 10% to both. And I would shoot it neat right out of the bottle. And I had great results with that. Um, There's a lot of good primers out there. I, I don't really have... I don't really have a preference for one over the other. I've used Mission a lot lately. Um, I have to confess that um, I've also started using uh, the last couple of models. I've switched back to using a lacquer primer only because it's it's so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you know, but again, uh, if you, as long as you call, follow those suggestions about degreasing and removing finger oil and and doing those other you know you know tricks, you can get an acrylic primer to 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 stick just as well. So much so that, you know, three or four hours after it's dry, you can be buffing it, you know, with micromesh preparatory for your uh, primary color. Speaking of that, let me ask you, do you normally, as a matter of course, after you've primed, come back and micromesh the, the primer? Or do you only do that if you find an imperfection, a booger in the, in the paints in the primer somewhere? So if I find, uh, we, pref- we prefer to call them an imperfection, Dave. Uh, 
Tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, if I find a booger right in the middle of that beautiful panel that I spent all my time on, um, you may be forced to pick up the MicroMesh. Um, I'm a firm believer in MicroMesh products. I've been using them for years. Um, I like the 6, 8, and 10K um, uh, t- you know, grits. And uh, the 6 and the 8 are really good for buffing the burgers out <laughs> or imperfections. Um now, back to your to your your question, do I do I micromesh the primer coat? I have to say that I was doing that every time, usually with 8, maybe 10, every time before I shot a primary color until I had a friend of mine, a shout out goes to uh, Blaine S here of uh, Seattle, um who instead of using micromesh as I was doing, um started using a chem wipe. <laughs> it's something that's been on my bench for ages and I had never thought, well, why don't you actually try to buff out with a chem wipe? I started doing that and I really like the result you get with that because hmm. it has, yeah, you should give it a try. It has enough of a texture to it. The tissue does that. It kind of, it takes all the powder and everything off, but it gives you just a really nice sheen. So hmm. in lieu of doing that, which I've started doing here in about the last year or so, maybe two years, um, I'll usually do uh, 12K or 10K micromesh uh, wet, and I always use it well, uh, with cold water with just a drop of uh, liquid detergent. So it's nice and slippery. When you are putting on a primer, mm-hmm. how do you apply it in a particular fashion? I do. Um, and that's one of the things I was, I was, I was reflecting on, you know, preparatory to this conversation, because again, I've started uh, in the last couple of models just for fun shooting a lacquer based primer, which I shot for years and I haven't, you know, in a long time. And you can just go right to a wet coat with those. Boom. You know, Um, you can to a similar degree, but not the same with some acrylic primers. Some in my hands, some acrylic primers lend themselves to doing that fire hose, you know, wet coat approach better than others do. One of that, one of those would be mission if properly diluted with the retarders and the flow aid, because that is it's key. Um, another one that lends itself to that fire hose technique would be Steinal Res. But if I'm not shooting one of those, or um, if you know the primer's just being temperamental, or the plastics being temperamental, we've all been there. For yep. some for some reason or another, you know the the primer isn't going on like you want it to. It's 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 you know it's 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 not sticking where you want it to stick. So in that in that situation, and in most, I will usually shoot a dry coat prior to a wet fill coat. And that's the same technique for sh- I use for shooting a primary color as well. You know, if I'm doing a Hellcat and it's going to be all blue and I'm doing the wing, I'll shoot left to right uh, a light dry coat or a tacky coat, and then I'll come back and do my wet fill coat. And I think that this is maybe a good time to segue right into dry versus wet coats. I was going to say, uh, I'm not sure that the, your average modeler understands what a dry coat or a wet coat is. So. Give us a little bit of a, if you'll pardon the expression, primer on the subject. <laughs> um, the rim shot button. I was, I yeah. know, from across <laughs> the bridge, we saw that one coming, didn't we? You know, I used to do these uh, these airbrushing classes. Hopefully, we'll be doing them again here at Skyway Hobbies uh, here in uh, Seattle. Actually, written uh, rent in Washington. 
And it's very easy to demonstrate them to a class and, and because half the guys, when they see it done, they say, oh, I've been doing that for years. I didn't know that's what you called it. And the other half go, hey, well, I didn't know you could do that. So it's, it's kind of a full range. But in short, what a dry coat is, is imagine you have your brush dialed in. You've got the paint diluted just right. You've got the pressure just right. You have maybe 20 or 30% lever throw. Now, when I mean lever throw, we're talking about the lever. If you have a pencil style airbrush, the paint lever. Zero would be no paint. 100 would be the lever pulled all the way back to the stop. So let's say you're somewhere around 20, 30% throw and you've got a line. Let's say, now this is all, you know, in your mind, if you will, a mind exercise. Let's say that this line is an eighth of an inch wide and you're spraying this line. In your mind's eye, while you're spraying that, that line, without adjusting the lever throw or anything else, simply increase the distance between the model and the brush. And you'll see the line first become wider. You'll still have a line. And then you'll see the line become diffuse to the point where it might be an inch wide kind of a tacky pattern. That's a dry coat. Okay. And now, what, it, what, what does a dry coat do for us? So what a dry coat does is a lot of guys, especially with the acrylics, where they, they don't tend to hit the model and level the way lacquers do. You love those lacquers. They hit the model and they want to move. Acrylics, yes. don't all, acrylics don't always want to move. So one of the ways you can trick them onto the model is first shoot a preparatory dry coat. So let's go back to our 48 scale Edward Hellcat, holding it in our hands and we got the left wing and the right wing. So I'm going to shoot, let's say we're shooting primer. So I'm going to shoot a dry coat on the left wing, left to right. Okay. I'm doing, you know, putting that dry coat on with the brush held farther back so that the paint, as we were describing, is a diffuse pattern. And it, as it's flying through this increased distance from the tip of the brush to the model, it dries out. It loses solvent and thinner and it hits the model tacky, right? So you shoot that tacky coat onto the left wing. You move over to the right wing. You shoot a tacky coat onto that. That might take maybe 30, 40 seconds, right? Now you go back to the left wing. Now that tacky coat has had a moment to sit. It's, it's, it's kind of semi-dried. Now you can shoot a wet fill coat. For the wet fill coat, we're going to move the brush closer to the model. We might even add a bit more paint, we'll pull the lever back a little bit more. The big thing we're going to do is we're going to increase the rate at which we move the brush because now we're going to be putting out way more paint. But when that wet paint now hits the model, it won't be hitting bare plastic. It'll be hitting a substrate of tacky paint. So it will be less prone to spider. It'll be less prone to, to run. And you'll get this very nice, very good coverage with that wet fill coat, right? Um, mm -hmm. So now you've done the wet fill coat on the left wing. Well, now the, the right wing has had a few moments to sit and dry with its tacky coat. So you cycle back and you shoot the wet coat on the right wing. I use that model as an example because some guys think, oh, you shoot the dry coat and then you wait, what, 30 minutes? No, 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 no. You want to shoot the dry coat, but you want to come back and shoot the wet fill coat on top of it while the dry coat is still wet and tacky. You don't want it to be entirely dry, right? Gotcha. Okay, so that's one good reason right there to, to, to use to use a dry coat application. And, the, and one way to think about it is if a dry coat is being applied 
properly, that that uh, that area where the paint is hitting the model, if you have a good light and good magnification and you're watching carefully as the paint hits the model, with a dry coat, the paint is never, ever shiny. The moment it goes shiny, you're into a fill coat. Gotcha. Because you see it, because with a wet fill coat, that paint has more solvent, more thinner in it. It hits the model wet. It's going to reflect light. It should not be reflecting light if it hits the model as a dry coat, because that solvent should have been burned off by now, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that's one good reason. Another good reason is for a dry coat. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of guys you know, uh, have masked off, you know, boats, uh, fuselage, waistbands, or whatever, and they want that really nice tight line. To reduce the chance of wicking wet paint under that tape, shoot a dry coat at that tape model interface first to kind of seal off that 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 uh, burnished tape, if you will, before you hit it with a wet fill coat. Um, doing that little trick on top of, of taped off lines will go a long way to stopping wet paint from wicking under the uh, the tape. Um, hmm. This is a this is a trick that I use a lot on canopies as well. And that is, I will, let's say I'm doing a, a, a P40, you know, and it's all OD green. Um, when I get to, and let's say I've, I've built the model with the canopy closed and it's, it's glued on the model and it's all masked. Yep. Well, I'm never, I'm never going to shoot a wet coat right on top of a masked birdcage canopy. Because you're just waiting for paint to wick under some of to those creep masks. under, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so as I'm shooting that P40, as I reach that, that, that canopy area, I'm going to transition from a wet coat to a dry coat. And, you know, with practice, you can do it and you don't even really think about it. You instinctively pull the brush a little farther back from the model. So the paint's drier now, not wet. And that tacky coat will hit that birdcage mask canopy, hopefully seal some of those tapes off so that you can slowly build that color up as a dry coat without ever having to go to a wet coat and risk getting the, the paint to wick under the tape. Now, is is it a sign that you've pulled back too far in, in applying a dry coat if the paint has become pebbly? Yes. Okay, that that's your sign that you've gone too you've pulled back too far. So if you if if you well, if you pull back too far, you'll get you'll get to a point where the paint's so diffuse that you're not even getting a coat, but gotcha. uh, you, you see what I'm saying? So, uh, but the pebbly, now if you're shooting a primer and you, you, it does look pebbly, a little pebbly at first when you shoot the dry coat, that's okay. Cause remember that paint isn't entirely dry. That, that, that tacky coat that's just sitting there is just that it's tacky. It's not dry. It's tacky. It's still mobilizable, if you will. As soon as that when wet, you put your wet coat on, exactly. So as soon as that wet coat comes on top of it, that dry coat kind of solubilizes to a certain degree and moves and levels, and it actually gives you better, smoother coverage that way. You just get more paint in the area, so it can level and do its thing. Makes sense. That that makes perfect sense. Awesome. I had I I had not thought of. You're right. I'd not thought of it exactly that way, but yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, especially with acrylics, it's you get spoiled by enamels or lacquers because they are so self-leveling. 
Yeah, exactly. And acrylics usually not. Now they can be tricked into self-leveling and we, you know, we can get into that here. Uh, hopefully at the end here, we have some suggestions for making uh, acrylics behave a little better, but one more, uh, one more thought about dry versus wet coats. And that one, that's, uh, as how it applies to clears, glosses and flats. Gotcha. So if you're doing a race plane and you want that, you know, 10 foot deep gloss shine or, you know, a Corvette or some kind of car, you're going to want to be able to shoot a dry followed by a wet coat because that, that, yeah, because that, even if I'm shooting lacquers, I will oftentimes shoot a slight khaki coat of my gloss and then I'll come back and shoot a real good heavy wet coat. And it just gives you, again, gives you more gloss, gives you more paint on the model that will then level and give you a much, much glossier finish. Now, that's not the case if you're shooting flats or semi-flats. And I get a lot of emails from guys and they say, you know, I'm shooting flat. I get a mission will do this. Vallejo will do this as well. I've seen Vallejo do this to me. And, you know, I get emails from guys saying uh, I'm shooting this flat or semi flat and I just can't get it to go flat. It just keeps, you know, kind of shiny. And then I, you know, through a series of emails, you come to find out that they're shooting this as a, a wet coat, yeah. you know, like you would a gloss. And, you know, that doesn't work very well for semi flats or mats or, or flats. So there's a good application right there where you probably want to pull the brush way back and shoot that semi flat or, or flat as a dry coat. Um, and to shoot it as a wet coat actually defeats the purpose with some of the, uh, some of the clears. Yeah. Uh, I've experienced that myself and it's a pain in the butt when it happens. It is because you get those little shiny rivers, if you will. Yes. The, yeah. So if you stay away from that wet coat, you know, if you if you get really adept at reading wet versus dry when you're shooting a clear and you stay away from stumbling into a wet coat, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And once, unfortunately, what I found, and maybe you've got a suggestion for this, once you've made the mistake, trying to get it to go flat in that area is 10 times harder than the original application. Yep. Yeah. You, you, it's tough to make disappear. Yeah, it is. It, it is. It's, it, it's, it's actually in line with the old adage that more paint isn't going to fix it. That's true a lot. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's true for a lot of airbrushing applications. I've, I've taught classes and I've watched guys try to spray away runs. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, before we get 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 away from the wet versus dry, can you? We've talked about wing roots and we've talked about uh, primers. Is there any other situation that comes to mind that uh, you might want to do this dry coat, wet coat, tandem kind of application you've been talking about? Well, one of the things that um, that uh, one of, another area that I like to use it is metallics. Um. Now, not so much again with the lacquer metallics. I've been shooting a lot of the AK metallics lately, um, and this is true for Alclad as well. And, How do you, you like know, the AK metallics? I love them, and you know, again, um, just have to be uh, honest and say that uh, they're on my site. The reason they're on my site is that I love them. As you know, um, we, we've talked about it before. Uh, you know, the, one of the things about Model Paint Solutions is I really don't put anything on the site that I can't get behind, that I haven't used at my bench and gone, wow, this is really good paint. And I tried the uh, AK Metallics oh, years ago when they 
pretty much when they first came out on a Focal Wolf uh, 190 V18 Kangaroo. And the mm-hmm. art- the article's on the site, and it blew me away at the time. I said, these are great metallics. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to add them to the site, I did, and I've got no regrets. They, they, are, they are excellent. And, th- and that is kind of a holy grail for uh, uh, metallics is an acrylic metallic. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll tell you, uh, uh, an acrylic metallic that behaves surprisingly well and is not on the site <laughs> and probably never will is the Vallejo range. Um, I've had really good results with the Vallejo metallics. Now, you know, I shoot them again with, uh, with uh, Liquitex Flowhade, Liquitex Retarder. And sometimes I even drop in a little bit of future floor wax to, uh, to make them a bit hardier, you know, the, the finish. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten beautiful results with the Vallejo range of metallics. So a shout out goes to them. Um, but when it and, and and it's a good segue because that's actually a metallic that uh, an acrylic metallic that does like to go down first as a dry coat followed by a wet fill coat. Um, you get way better results with the Vallejo metallics if you shoot them like that. At least I do. Um, whereas if you're shooting the AK or the Alclad lacquer metallics, you can just fire hose those. And they level on their own and they're beautiful. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the Alclad metallics, and part of the reason is that they're you know, I'm an idiot modeler and they're pretty idiot proof yeah. uh, as, oppo- as opposed to an acrylic metallic. Yeah. But I know that uh, uh, a number of modelers have been singing the praises of the AK items as an acrylic metallic. Again, you apply those as a dry coat first and then a wet coat? I usually do. Um, I usually apply most of my paints like that. I've gotten into the habit of, of applying a slight dry coat before I switch to a wet coat for all of the reasons that I, 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 I said earlier. I get more paint on the model. I get less runs. I get better leveling. Um, it's very rare that I fire hose something, even if I can. I usually don't because I'm just in the habit of shooting a dry coat first. Sure. So even with a even with an enamel or a lacquer, you can do you even though even though it might not be as necessary to get the finish. Yep, you can still do the dry coat wet coat thing. Yep, and and full disclosure, um, the AK real colors are now on my site, and again they're on the site because they blew me away. Um, the aircraft colors are up on the site. The AFV colors are in stock, and uh, as soon as I turn into a uh, a laptop oct- octopus and get them all uploaded on the site, the AFV colors will be available as well. So full disclosure. I, well, full disclosure, I will tell you, I I am famous in my club and elsewhere for writing articles with titles such as I hate acrylics. Um, <laughs> I, I actually did write several, a series of articles entitled I hate acrylics. <laughs> um, now keep in mind that was many, many years ago, but I will tell you that the AK product, the AK real color product yeah. thinned with unicorn tears, the, the, uh, uh, Mr. Color leveling thinner. Yep is as close an experience to spraying an enamel as I have found in any acrylic paint. It, it, it's very, very forgiving, which is what I like about enamels and lacquers. So I couldn't agree more. And as chance would have it, um, 
I'm working up the uh, DML Dragon. I know I'm going to get this wrong. GTK. Oh, God. Uh, Boxer, which is this wedge-shaped uh, armored personnel vehicle that is, uh, that's, that's being built by a consortium in Europe. It's a pretty neat-looking thing. It's wedge-shaped, um, kind of like futuristic um, eight-wheeled you know, armored vehicle. Um, and anyway, I picked it up uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in, in order to try the AK. And I did something different on this model. I bounced back and forth between using the same paint in either Gunze Leveling Thinner, uh, Unicorn Tears, as you call it, um, or uh, the equivalent in the AK range, which would be the Nitro Lacquer Thinner, which... Mm-hmm. Which is basically, or not basically, it's very similar to Gunze leveling thinner, and you get beautiful results in this and with that thinner. But what blew me away is I tried their high compatibility acrylic thinner, and I bounced back and forth using the same paint but different thinners and doing fine line and fill work on this 70 second scale boxer that I'm doing. And uh, I have to tell you, um, the stuff shoots as well and in the high compatibility thinner as it does in the lacquer thinner. It kind of amazed me. Is that the AK Blue label? That's, that's the AK Blue label. Well, it's, it's high compatibility, non-lacquer. It's a non-lacquer yeah. thinner. It's an alcohol water-based thinner. Um, and I... It, I, you know, I start my analysis of e- of any paint, usually at 50% paint, and then I drop it to 40%, then I drop it to 30%, then I drop it to 20%. And at each percent, I attest, you know, coverage, uh, fine line capacity, uh, tendency to develop tip dry. And uh, it's not an exaggeration. Uh, when I shot, uh, I started with 50% and I got a little bit of tip dry. That's 50% paint, 50% high compatibility thinner. When I dropped that down to 40% paint, I shot all of the wheel hubs on this model. And I didn't have to drop, I didn't have to wipe one goober off the uh, off the tip of the airbrush. And when I finished, that's- I I looked at the tip of the airbrush and there weren't any goobers there. That's amazing. I mean, it because is. again, again, using a non-lacquer thinner. It is. I, uh, that's, it is. Uh, I, I am super impressed by the real color range. It is. And I have a theory on this. And that is. I want to hear it. The paints themselves are acrylic lacquers. So they have to be shipped by ground. So it is a right. lacquer, as you know. And I'm thinking if, if there might be just enough of the lacquer carrier, if you will, within that paint that I did not have to add any Liquitex Fluid or Retarder to deal with the tip dry. I mean, I, I had both reagents ready to go, you know, because I was this is an acrylic thinner. So you have to expect, you know, and based on my experience, tip dry. It simply didn't happen. So I think, you know, there, there might be enough of whatever the, the lacquer carrier is in the paint such that when you d- dilute it, now I was diluting it to 40%, I diluted it down to 30% for fine line, and I was getting half a millimeter lines with no tip dry. It was, it was amazing. That is amazing. You got to give the high compatibility of thinner a try because it also doesn't stink your shop up because you really can't <laughs> smell it. it. It's about, it smells like Vallejo. It smells like Mission. You know, that's about it. it the stink, you know, that's in the eye of the beholder. I kind of actually <laughs> like the smell of, of acrylic, of lacquer thinner, but 
that's just me. I'm weird. You know, I shot Gunze for years. It was my favorite paint. I still have a bunch of it. As you guys know, it's often very difficult to get. And when yes. I, I went back and started shooting the real colors in the nitro thinner, I got that whiff of what smells like Gunze. And, I, and it, yeah, I had this nostalgic kind of flashback. <laughs> yeah, this is what airbrushing should smell like. <laughs> well, I, I will say I have been blown away by the AK real colors and the their closeness to the experience of spraying an enamel or a lacquer. I'll tell you. And they're, I, and they're durable, too. I they mean, are. They're, they're, we, we, we don't want to get into fingernails and scratching, <laughs> but uh, it really is durable and sandable. Yeah, it is. It is. And that, and that's the other thing that surprised me uh, is, is the durability. And lastly, something I commented on to a friend just a couple of days ago, how easy they clean. Yes. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm used to, you know, fighting the, the, the acrylic out. If it's mission, if it's Vallejo, you're going to be fighting it out of your brush. Now I've been using now for those, I usually use a mixture of denatured alcohol and Windex to clean most acrylics out of my airbrush. I know I'm going to get emails for that one. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. Um, but none, but, uh, for, for cleaning, uh, uh, real colors, I switched to just straight denatured alcohol and that stuff cleans up like there's no tomorrow. My brush is clean yep. with two or three strokes and I'm done. Yep. So anyway, yeah, I could go on, but, um, if you, if you wanted to, I think the next thing we were going to talk about is, um, some diluting strategies for various acrylic paints. We talked about kind of the general wet coat, dry coat, kind of a general, high level topic. So let's, let's talk about maybe this, this modeling we, we, we talked about before we started recording. I, okay. I've got a modeling. I said modeling. 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 I just want to make sure. No, I just want to make sure everybody hears. Oh, okay. Modeling, not modeling. So, so we've got a 72nd or 48th or 32nd, uh, FW 190 or a 109. And it's got, you've picked a scheme out. It's got all this really diffuse, small-looking uh, pattern on it. Um, how are we going to do that, John? <laughs> um, hmm. tell, tell the armor guy how he's going to do that. Hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about how I'm going to, to use the line I normally do on a podcast and not get in trouble. Um, you can use it. Okay, so... Um, modeling. Now I, I'm a Luftwaffe guy. I, I, I love, uh, I love modeling schemes. That's in part why I like doing a Luftwaffe aircraft because they have some very interesting schemes, as you know, ditto that for Italian and Japanese aircraft as well. Yep. Um, the thing about modeling in 72nd scale, which is to me, one of the, one of the bigger challenges a modeler airbrush, you know, enthusiast can have is modeling in that small scale. And since the models themselves are so small, what I liken it to is uh, <laughs> the first time that, you know, we are with um, someone of the opposite sex and experience them in, in let's say, a biblical way is oftentimes, yes. <laughs> oftentimes over before you know it. <laughs> so I liken 72nd scale modeling to that, you know, if, if the, since the model is so small, you can't think your way painting it. You can't think your way through it because it's over too fast. So you have to practice 
doing these, it's almost like shooting dots, but it is a dot with a wiggle. You're shaking the brush at the same time. Um, 172nd scale modeling, uh, at least I put a lot of time just sitting behind the brush, practicing on sheet styrene till I was happy with it. And I'm still learning how to do it better. But I can tell you that it's something that um, is, it's, it's, uh, it's a technique where, again, you shoot, it's like you're shooting a dot, you know, just a, a, a round circle dot. You know, you're only pulling 10 or 15% throw on the airbrush. But when you're shooting that dot, you are wiggling or moving the brush in a very small, subtle way in order to get the shape of the model. And that's the, that's the challenge right there. And uh, especially in that scale. Now, when you move up to 48 scale, the models become, you know, uh, correspondingly larger. And you can actually, at that point, they're big enough where you can think your way through painting one. Does that make sense? Yes. Because, you know, now you're looking at something that isn't literally a millimeter or a millimeter and a half long. Now you're looking at a model that's two or three or four millimeters long. So you can, okay, here's the beginning of the model. Here's the middle and here's the little tail I want to have. Now, at that scale, you can start shooting them and, and, and thinking of it in that way. Ditto that for any scale larger than 48 scale. Um, so that's the first thing on Motling. And the other thing is, now, Motling is another situation where since it's, it's going to be uh, fine line airbrushing, so you're going to have the paint diluted for fine line. You're going to have air pressure and working distance adjusted for fine line. But it's one of those start-stop fine lines, which means you're going to be building up a lot of goobers on the paintbrush or on the on the tip of the airbrush. So, you know, I have a, a small container with a micro brush soaking in thinner right next to where I'm airbrushing. And every two or three models, I stop, I clean the tip, I go do two or three more models, I stop, I clean the tip. That's the only way I found to ensure that that big goober doesn't fly off the tip right in the middle of that panel while you're putting a model on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, yeah I, I haven't found a better trick than just, hey, wipe the tip every couple of seconds. That said, um, after shooting the AK uh, or any other, you know, uh, lacquer, Gunze did the same thing. You didn't have anywhere near the tip dry if you were shooting Gunze with leveling thinner. Um, but modeling with an acrylic paint, doing the start-stop, that's going to require a lot of uh, uh, tip uh, tip cleaning. Frequent and, mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, and copious amounts of tip cleaning. Well, and not only that, but testing it on your scrap piece of plastic before you go back to put more modeling on the model. Yep, exactly right. And appreciating that um, every minute or two minutes or so, you should do a full throw clear of the brush because mm -hmm. the, the paint is, is, you know, there within the tip. You're using so little paint that it'll start clogging up inside the tip as well. So after you've done, you know, a panel or two of models, you know, go off target, if you will, you know, aim at the garbage can, full throw, and then readjust it, you know, and like you said, test on your sheet of styrene before you go back to the kit. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, That's models, the best I can just, again, something I used to demonstrate in the classes, and once you see it done, again, um, it, you know, it's not, it's not that hard to emulate a little, a little more difficult to explain with words. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're painting a word picture for us. Yeah. I will tell you that 70 second scale modeling, you're going to have to sit down with sheet styrene and put a couple of hours into it. Well, I will say that I have seen your 70 second scale Machi. What was it? 200 or 202. Yep. yep. And yep. 
finest example of modeling, I modeling, I think I've seen as far as being able to apply those green models over that sand color. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yep. And as, as chance would have it, that's an Italian model. And it, 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 it looks, if you look at the model at each model in, individually, they look like a little uh, sunburst mm-hmm. and they're actually easier to shoot than are the German and Japanese models. The little starburst, mm. and I'll sh- and I and I can show you that technique, or I can show you that trick sometime. The hardest ones to do are really those single, isolated little models, like on the side of an ME one hundred nine or a one ninety, where you just have a little, you know, a series of little. Those are the hard ones. And the the irony is, the guy who did that on the one to one didn't really give a rip. He's just pulling an air gun trigger. Yeah. And, you know, using a whole bunch of tricks like, you know, putting because they had fan tips at that point. So they were, you know, blocking the tip with a portion of their finger to get a smaller pattern. And yeah, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, never in the world was this guy while he's applying this thinking, you know what, 50 years from now, some guy's going to be trying to do this on a 70 second scale model with a with an airbrush the size of a pencil. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. I have, I have actually had that thought looking at so many, you look at, it, we both know that there are a couple of, of aircraft that show up, you know, pretty regularly at contests, you know, and some of those schemes, you have to wonder, you know, how many guys have sat and stared at, at some man's work for thousands of hours, you know, trying to duplicate yep. this man's anyway, interesting thought. Yeah. So <laughs> did that, did that answer your question on Motling? Mot- Motling? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'll, I'll, I got to practice. It's it's that's the uh, in the nutshell version. <laughs> that is the way that you get to Carnegie Hall, man. Practice, practice, practice. Yep, yep. You know, for it's it's actually the, what I used not to beat this into the ground, but uh, I think everybody has a, a a twitch in their hand. You know, they have a an, an innate little movement that they can you know do do quickly with their hand. That's what I've harnessed to do modeling. You know, I'm sure if I develop Parkinson's one day, it'll be this little twitch that'll just be magnified. But um, it's it's a, it's it's a pattern that my hand does when I when I make my hand wiggle, if you will, in a very small controlled way. I come up with a tiny little pattern, and I've harnessed that pattern when I'm doing a 70 second scale model. So I think about it, I do it, and then I look and see what I did because again, they're so small, you don't really think your way through them; you just do them. All right, what's next? Yeah. Talk to us about acrylics. So dilution strategies for acrylics. So what I've tried to do here is kind of lump some of these paints together. um, Try to get all of them covered um, as best I can. I'm not going to hit them all um, in part because I I make it a point to not really give suggestions on a paint that I don't know. And I don't get to know a paint well until I've actually used it on a project. You know, shooting it, you know, for a few minutes to help somebody do a line is not really learning the paint. So I've not really spent that much time with the Hataka paints. I've shot them once or twice, but I can't really give much comment on them. But um, some of the paints that are more commonly used, um, I can give some uh, some suggestions on. And, you know, starting with Vallejo Color, uh, Life Color, Model Master uh, Acrylic. Um, now, when I, I'm speaking of Vallejo right now, I'm talking about Vallejo co- uh, color, not Vallejo air, which is, as you probably know, way more dilute than Vallejo color. Right. So for all of these acrylics, you can also add Tamaya. If you're shooting Tamaya in an acrylic thinner, you can add um, 
uh, mission models. If you're, sh- well, if, if you're shooting it and it's thinner, um, all of these acrylic paints really benefit from um, having both flow aid and paint retarder added to them for airbrushing. And um, it, uh, I give a uh, percent volume. So, you know, if, if it's t- 10% volume, it's, you know, uh, one part, you know, two to nine for a total of 10. Right. So, right. Um, so, you know, with regards to Liquitex flow aid and Liquitex paint retarder, for most acrylics, you can use those at, at five or 10% volume each. And what I do is, let's say for Vallejo, I have my bottle of Vallejo thinner made up, you know, for when I'm shooting that, that brand. And already added to the thinner, I have 10% flow aid and 5% paint retarder. That's what I like to use in my Vallejo. That's already added to the thinner ahead of time in the bottle, ready to go. Don't have to think about it. It's just ready to go. Um, the same is true for life color. For life color, if you guys, um, a lot of guys are, are still using life color, color. I love life color acrylic pa- uh, uh, paint. It is finicky. It is fragile. Um, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not the easiest paint to use, but if you can work your way around some of these issues, it will provide the smoothest finish that I've seen, uh, from all these acrylics we're talking about right now. Um, so that's the upside to, uh, to a uh, life color and in my hands that there's no easier, uh, uh, paint to, uh, apply with a hairy stick than is life color. Yes. So. Yes. But brush paints very well. Beautifully. So, so, but again, if, if you're my life color, I have a uh, 10% flow aid, 5% paint retarder, and I add 10% um, uh, future or pledge with future shine to my life color thinner that helps with the, the stability when it's dry, that pledge really locks the paint in place and makes it makes, gives you a much hardier finish. Um, so anyway, uh, in, in, you know, bird's eye view, if you're shooting any of these acrylic um, thinners, you, you may want to think about adding both flow aid and paint retarder to your thinner. Um, now that said, what percent paint? Um, a lot of guys get, send me emails. They're having problems with uh, clogging. They're having problems with nasty finishes and powdery, you know, powdery finishes. And then you know, through a series of emails, come to find out they're shooting sixty percent paint, or in some instances fifty percent paint. That's a lot of paint. That's, that's a pretty mm-hmm. high percent of paint. So in general, for these, for these uh, brands that we're discussing right now, um, for general work, I usually want to be somewhere uh, around 30 or 40 percent paint, 50 to 60 percent thinner. Um, that gives you very, you know, good coverage with, you know, very nice fine finish on the end. Um, if I'm doing fine line, not general work, but doing a fine line, you know, even Motlight. I'm going to take that paint from 30 or 40% and drop it down to maybe 20 or 25%, depending on the brand. I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes here. But you're going to drop your percent paint down for a fine line with most of those brands. You'll also drop your pressure down correspondingly. So most of these brands like somewhere between 12 to 18 PSI. Let's say 15 is a good, you know, uh, it's high, but let's say that's a good medium for some people. For fine line, you're gonna you're probably gonna want to be around 10 psi, maybe even less, with an inline air valve. Um, so that's it for for that for for those brands. Now, do you think do you think that a lot of the the 
differentiation between acrylic brands has to do with the fineness of the pigment? There's a lot of variabilities there. There really are. Um, One of which is how fine the pigments are ground. And some, it's very clear that some manufacturers are using finer pigments than others. Um, a lot of it is the solvent that they're using, the, the, what thinner, what, it, it, what the thinner is based in, what alcohol is being used. There's a lot of variables there. Well, n- another thing you're, another thing you're saying that I think a lot of people, particularly those just, just starting out airbrushing or modeling or whatever with a D, um, you're talking, you're talking dilutions that are, are kind of most, most people just getting into it would, would think would be out of bounds if you'd ever have more thinner in the mix than paint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, I, I think it was one of the, one of the first uh, big tips and tricks that I did. The, the leading cause to airbrush unhappiness is too high a paint, a, a concentration, because once you get that paint too high, you start getting tip dry, you get, you start getting goobers, you start this, right. it, the, the, the brush just can't atomize the paint. Um, and I, I've lost track of how many emails I've gotten from guys that are having problems. And I, you know, I find out they're shooting 50%, 60%. And I say, Hey, try 30%. And it, it never fails. They always, they always come back and go, Hey, less tip dry, less goobers. And it just flows. And yeah, you know, it, it does work. <laughs> less paint, <laughs> less paint. And it is, it is for a lot of guys just starting. It is counterintuitive because for some reason, 50, 50 is where a lot of guys start and, you know, they kind of stay there. And another one, not to beat a dead horse, but another one is guys who start at 50, 50 and they get good at 50, 50, which you can do with lots of paints. And then they want to try to do fine line, but they're still using a 50, 50 mixture of paint. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a real steep, steep, uh, steep climb, you know, to get a 50% mixture of paint to give you a half a millimeter wide line. And not to, not, not to blow sunshine up, uh, uh, Dr. Miller's skirt here, but, uh, he keeps mentioning his emails and his correspondence. Uh, John is one of those guys in the industry who really does interact with, customers with people just seeking knowledge and uh he's done so with me on a number of occasions i know many people he's done done that with and you know it's in this day and age that's that's not as common a customer service as as you would want uh, as as you would want to to experience but uh uh, it is nice that you've got somebody with as much experience as, as he has telling you, okay, here's where you are. Let's let's alter these variables and see what you get. And it's a it's a real learning experience. And uh, he's been very very generous. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I, I do appreciate that. Thank you. That's all right. I'll say bad things about you later behind your back to make up for it. I hear from Jim. I hear from Jim. So. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> well, were we about to talk about a, a another another category of acrylic paints? So let's get so let's while we're on Vallejo, we talked about Vallejo Air. Uh, excuse me, we talked about Vallejo Color, which is a thick paint, a thicker paint. Let's go to Vallejo Air. A lot of guys like using Vallejo Air, and for for this, um, the paint is thinner; it's less viscous. And for that, I I what I find at, at my bench is I get really good results with about seventy percent paint and thirty percent thinner. 
And that thinner, again, still has my Liquitex Flow Aid and my paint retarder in it. Um, but now with the Vallejo Air versus Vallejo Color, I drop that dilution down to just 30% thinner because the paint's already pretty thin. Um, and uh, while we're there, uh, the something I mentioned the last time I was on was uh, the, the new versus the old mission. That's how I'm referring to it. Mission V1 versus, versus Mission V2. So when Mission Models first came out... Um, it was the thickest acrylic I'd ever seen. Some, I mean, some of it was about as thick as toothpaste when it came out of the bottle. Um, and it was thicker than Vallejo Color, you know, which is the, th the thicker version of the, the two Vallejos. Um, Mission V2 is much thinner. Um, the viscosity has, has been decreased. Um, and so much of the, or most of the uh, percent volume suggestions that uh, that were given early on really don't work for this new version v2 and i'm going to be putting a, a a piece up on the on the site in the next week or two that um is going to uh, make some suggestions for shooting uh this the second version of mission which is thinner um very much like the vallejo air is a thinner version of vallejo color um the the mission v2 is a thinner version version of mission v1 so with that in mind, um, uh, for mission, the new mission, I'm finding you get beautiful results diluting the paint 50-50 um, with just uh, mission thinner. And again, that's mission thinner like all acrylics with a little bit of uh, flow aid and paint retarder in it. Um, and uh, ditto that for the primer. Um, uh, mission primer shot 50-50 uh, with its thinner. With the uh, with the flow aid and the paint retarder gives you absolutely beautiful results. Well, when did when do you think this when did this change happen? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, near as I can tell, they the the change came just before um, uh, uh, the uh, round of colors were released, where we got the uh, Ford Arcadia blue and the, the purples and some of the car colors came out. I think it was probably about six or seven months ago, maybe longer now, but somewhere in there. And uh, that's, that's when I picked up on a, a, a change in the viscosity of the paint. Now, the upside is that the paint actually, the newer version of paint actually shoots a little easier than the older version. It, it's thinner. It gives you a finer finish with less texture. It gives you less tip dry than the first version of the paint. But you don't get something for nothing. And what's been given up is, is with the new formula is the forgiving nature of the, of the mission paint. Um, as you probably remember, when it first came out, it was so thick and so viscous that you had to make, you had to work to make it run or spider. Um, when, when I was demonstrating the mission when it first came out uh, for airbrushing classes, I literally had to put the brush on the, the sheet of styrene and pull the lever back to halfway to get a good spider to demonstrate it. Didn't have to do that with any of the other acrylics that I was demonstrating. But that characteristic is gone. So it's not quite as, as forgiving as it was initially. But the upside is you're getting a slightly finer finish than you were before. So. Uh, John, I got a question for you. Sure. You you are very eclectic in you now part of this is I'm sure your business and you need to know 
all of these different paint ranges and all of all of their their performance characteristics. But most modelers that I'm familiar with, and myself included, get, if you'll pardon the expression, married to a paint range. Yep. They find something that they like, and that's their preferred paint range. Yep. Uh, me personally, I have two, AK for the acrylic, real color for the uh, acrylics, and uh, what used to be called white ensign models for the, uh, or color coats for the enamels. Those are beautiful paints. Yeah, I know. I love them. Yeah. Uh, but what is there an, do you think there's an advantage to, not being married to a particular paint range? So I think that's, well, that's a twofold answer. I think, I think early on um, for someone just new to the sport, um, you should probably stick with one paint. If you're, if you're learning all the, you know, the, the, the intricacies of airbrushing, you know, how to dilute the paint, what pressure, what working distance. I mean, that's just scratching the surface, right? Um, right. You want to take as many variables out of the equation as you can. So at that stage, if you're just starting, um, sticking with one brand of paint and learning that brand is probably the best way to go about it because each brand is different. And Model Master doesn't behave the same way as Life Color, as the same way as Vallejo. As they know, they're all slightly different, you know, in the way they shoot. Um, so for beginners, the answer would be stick with one paint, get to know it, get, get to know your brush, get to know your technique. And then once you have those established, you can reach out and try a different paint and you have a springboard of skills to use to learn that new paint, right? Um, for the guys who've been doing this for a while and have some experience, you know, uh, with a brush, with this many great paints available, each with its own strength and weakness, I say use whatever is the best paint for the application. And, you know, in that regard, you know, to digress for a second, um, again, I'm doing this little 72nd scale uh, 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 boxer, GTK boxer. And, um, you know, I find myself doing most of it in the AK real colors, in part because I'm working that up as a, as a, a demonstration article for the paint. And here I am looking at these rubber wheels that, you know, unfortunately, yeah, I know um, the kit comes with rubber wheels. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't like the color, obviously, that they are. I'm going to have to paint them. And I'm thinking, well, obviously, you've got one of the best paints ever made for shooting on these rubber wheels. And that's Mission. Because that's you know, a great. I had never thought of that. That is, uh, that is a really interesting and profound because those things are the the bane of most modelers' existence. Those oh, they rubber are. and the fact that there's a paint that will actually kind of adhere to them. Yeah, exactly right. And I was I was thinking before uh, before I put Mission on Model Paint Solutions, I saw a video of uh, John Tampkin, the guy that started Mission, um, shooting some rubber uh, wheels, you know, model wheels. And after they're shot, after they're dry, he takes the wheel and he turns it inside out and turns it, you know, like a donut or a pretzel, I should say. And the paint doesn't flake off or come off the uh, the tire. Um, That's and so, amazing. 
Yeah. And, you know, and this isn't news. I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody who's been using mission on these, you know, tires knows that this, this paint is great for that. Cause it's, it's, since it's a polyurethane, it is going to give, it's not going to flake. It's going to flex. Right. So mm-hmm. there's an example. I'm having a blast shooting all these really nice, tight, fine lines with AK oftentimes in a nitro based lacquer thinner, but I'm going to switch to my polyurethane acrylic for these tires because, you know, AK probably wouldn't work. So gotcha. that's, that's an example of with, with, with some experience handling, diluting and spraying paints and this many brands to choose from. It's almost a shame not to, you know, branch out a little bit and, you know, use each paint for its strength. Um, anyway, uh, uh, lastly, uh, uh, the last little category of paint that I was going to touch on real quick, I think we've, we've talked about Vallejo, we've talked about Mission, but we need to talk about what I call the, the ACDC paints, um, and that would be uh, Tamaya, and uh, now you can add to that the AK Real Colors, um, and these are paints that can be uh, diluted in either a, a water-based acrylic thinner. Um, and Tamaya, uh, uh, Tamaya, the example would be the F20 or XF20 thinner. Um, or you can take Tamaya, as you guys have discussed, and dilute it in Gunze leveling thinner, and it shoots beautiful in both thinners, right? Um, AK Real Colors is the same way. It's, it's a paint that can be brought up in an acrylic-based thinner. Um, or you can bring it up in a lacquer-based thinner and get good, re- good results with both. Um, for those paints, I'm finding the AK Real Colors for me is kind of like Tamaya and Gunze had a child. Yes, absolutely <laughs> a great way to describe that. And the child was AK, AK Real Colors. In that, in my hands, probably the nicest shooting lacquer I've ever shot would probably be the Akon range, if you've ever shot Akon lacquers. Right, the Russian range. Yeah, they're beautiful. I mean, they stink to to uh, they, they yes. stink to have, but they shoot beautifully, and they shoot. They smell a lot like PPG Duracryl, and that's what I actually dilute them in, which makes this, this, this my house smell like an automotive shop. But um, <laughs> you know, uh, second to the Akon lacquers, the best lacquer I've ever shot would 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 have to be Gunze, and AK Real Colors shoots as well as Gunze. So yeah. Yeah, but unlike Gunze, you can bring the AK and the Tamaya up in either an acrylic water-based or a lacquer-based thinner, and and, and the paints behave uh, really well in both. So that's the ACDC category, I call it. Um, and for, <laughs> for, for percent paints there, again, um, what I'm finding with the, uh, the, the AK Real Colors is very similar to, to Tamaya, which is, again, similar to the Gunze range. And for that general work, I'm, I'm shooting about 30 or 40 percent paint, um, 60 to 70 percent thinner. And yeah. um, I find that I took the, the AK Real Colors, just like with the Gunze, I took it down to about 25 percent paint with a 0.15 millimeter tip um, and a working distance of about four millimeters. And I was shooting a half millimeter wide line. Yeah. And people people say people say it's a pencil wide line, and I say only if it's been sharpened. Yes. Well, when we when we have you back next, and we will have you back next, I want to get into the discussion of needle and nozzle sizes because I don't 
think that most modelers think about that subject very much. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to say about it. Yeah. So next time we have you on, I want to talk about needle and nozzle sizes and why you need more than one. That's, that is an awesome topic for discussion because part of at least my approach to, to shooting, shooting airbrushes is matching the size of that nozzle needle combo, the tip, matching the size of the tip to the dilution. So you're not yes. going to be shooting 50% paint through a 0.15 tip. Likewise, I don't ever sh see myself shooting 20% paint through a 0.4 tip. So, um, yeah, it's a great, that's a great idea. I'd love to talk about that. Well, All we right. will definitely do so next time. Great. Well, John, tell us, tell, tell everybody where they can find you once, once again, and we, we, we won't have to run your ad. <laughs> nice. we'll, we'll, we'll run it anyway <laughs> that's modelpaintsolutions.com and uh hit the site and if you go up to the right hand side you'll see the paint booth and all the articles will drop down and uh, if you have any questions on airbrushing or diluting paints or finishing paints of any kind drop me a line and i will get back to you and and again, I want to emphasize again not to blow uh, sunshine up John's skirt, but he truly is. If you shoot him an email with a problem, he will respond to you, and and he he's one of those good guys in modeling that is looking to help the modeler solve his problem. So again, shoot him a lot. Go to his website. Look around. There's a lot of great articles, but also if you're having a problem with something, shoot him a line. I guarantee you he's got an answer for you. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. You're welcome. All right. Well, John, thanks for joining us again. And uh we'll get we'll get you back on real soon. Sounds good, guys. Have a good one. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview. Uh Dr. Miller has promised us that he will return in a future episode to answer further questions and, and give further tips and tricks regarding airbrushing and all things paint. So stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Mike, uh, do you have a shout out for the this episode? I've got two. Uh, one is the standard support shout out with several names. I'll get into it first, but, uh, when I'm done with that, you do yours. You got it. Uh, plastic model mojo would like to thank, uh, Robert Morales, Kenneth Spar, John Ozatska, Warren Dixon, Paul Wheeler, Matt O'Meara, and well, Ian McCauley and just under the wire, uh, Robert Hallinger for their contributions to plastic model mojo financially. These gentlemen have uh, generously donated to our cause to help bring this podcast to you. If you would like to join in this effort, please do so by going to www.plasticmodelmojo.com and you will find a heart icon in the upper right-hand corner of the webpage. Uh, you can use that to make a direct PayPal contribution to our efforts. And this has all been a huge help paying for equipment, paying for hosting, etc. We really, really appreciate it. It's really been flattering how much we've actually got, and we just appreciate it. So thank you very much. Very much, guys. And also, all of you people who were just listed, if you have not sent me an email to l-o-u-l-a-w at aol.com, if you haven't sent me an email with your name and address, please do so. I've got something for each and every one of you. So uh, please do that. 
my my shout out of the month is actually your fault. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> Archer dry transfers. Although in this case, they're not dry transfers. They're, they're uh, decal sets. Because Archer was a fixture at Amps. I've been familiar with Archer for years. Uh, I've actually gotten some of their dry transfer products over the years, which, by the way, they've now are discontinuing the dry transfer portion of their business. But your your recommendation to get these uh, resin decals, uh, rivet decals, uh, added a new added a new tool in my toolbox. Uh, I've I learned something new. I tried something new. Uh, I was very pleased with the result. They're definitely worth. They're not very expensive, and they're definitely worth the price. Uh, and they're easy to apply. I highly, highly, highly recommend Archer's uh, resin detail, surface detail decals. They're they're a, a tool in the toolbox for adding more detail to your model. So I've got you to thank for that. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for trying them out first. You're you're welcome. <laughs> Didn't realize I was being guinea pigged. I'll get you back. Don't worry. Well, my other shout out is for uh, John Notestad at Red Frog Hobbies. John Bonani had put me onto them because I was trying to find this particular set of life color paint. And I placed the order and sometimes things don't happen as they should. And something happened. We don't know what. I was having trouble getting this order fulfilled for whatever reason. We were at the IPMS Roscoe Turner show and I was looking at some paint and finishing stuff. And there's a lot of nice stuff on this guy's table. And I said, uh, I I might need some of this stuff later. Do you happen to have a card? And he had me a card and it was John from Red Frog Hobbies. (laughs) And I said, I've got an order out with you. That's like two months stale and has not been fulfilled yet. Um, what's going on about that? And he was very gracious, very apologetic and, He's uh, fulfilled that order, and I saw a ship notice just come to me a couple days ago that that order is on the way. And uh, um, let's just see. Let's just say he made it right. I won't get into what he did, but uh, he made it very favorable. And that's good good that he stood by his business. And I don't know what happened there. Uh, Something got lost in translation, but he was able to verify my order and took care of it. And John, I really appreciate that. I'm going to be doing more business with you in the future. Because of uh, your your attention to making bad things go away, and you know what? In general, uh, my experience, uh, with very rare exception, my experience in the hobby has been that these uh, hobby retailers, uh, online show uh, retailers, wh- however they're involved in the business, in general, are a bunch of really good guys who will go out of their way to make sure that. You get what you need, and and they're in business to to make money, but uh, they're also good at customer service because many of them are modelers as well, so they know yep what we're experiencing. Got anything else? No, that's it, Mike. I think this is going to be a record long episode. Well, so it may uh, it may be, Dave. So we better we better cut it off here and get on down the road with other things. So as they always say, Dave, so many kits. So little time. See you next time, Mike. We'll catch you next time. You got it.